Amen. If you have your Bibles, if you turn with me to Psalm 90. As you turn there, I'm just going to give you a little context. Psalm 90, it says, is a prayer of Moses. It's the oldest psalm in the Bible. And it's written by Moses. He's reflecting on his life in his last years, right around the time he wrote the Pentateuch. And he's seeing the effects of sin even on God's people and longs for something better for those who follow the Lord. Which leads him to this prayer that's so apt for us as we consider this passing of this year and entering into a new year. It's the perfect thing to inform us as we're trying to reflect on our lives and and what kind of people we should be, what kind of help we need. So let's read Psalm 90, the Word of God. Lord, you've been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or you ever formed the earth and the world, From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it's past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away with the flood. They are like a dream, like grass that's renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are seventy, or by reason of strength, eighty. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They're soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear that is due you? So teach us to number our days so that we might get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad as many days as you've afflicted us. And for as many years as we've seen evil, let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Let's pray. Well, God, I thank you that you give us your word. And your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path that you even instruct us in how we to pray, how to approach you how to think about you and even how to reflect on our own lives. Lord, what's most important in this moment is not that we hear my word, for it's very passing, it's very frail, but that we hear your word. God, will you speak to us through your spirit even now? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Maybe seated. So good morning, and uh, a little early, get Happy New Year. It's not quite there, but tomorrow will be. And as we reflect on this year, um, I don't know about you, but every year it seems hard. And I don't know, post-COVID, it seems harder than usual, perhaps. Maybe that's just me joining everybody else and blaming COVID for everything. But when, when the hardness of life hits, when we start realizing 
how painful life is and how much we screw up, where do you tend to look for confidence? Where do you tend to run? Moses is reflecting on this, this question in light of the hardness of life, where am I to run? And he gives us some pretty amazing insight, even as he's offering to us a prayer that we can wonderfully offer ourselves to God. But where do you run? Uh, in our culture, we're, we're trained to run in several different places. Uh, the word privilege has become a, a four-letter word, but, but in many ways, we tend to lean on our privilege, the things that we have that are advantages. Maybe it's money, maybe it's power, maybe it's smartness, maybe it's beauty, maybe it's skill, maybe it's strength. At different ages, at different phases, we tend to lean on different things. Maybe it's parenting skills, maybe it's just a knack for getting things done. But we tend to lean on, on meritocracy, on our strengths uh, when the hard things come. Or maybe if it's not strengths that we lean on, maybe it's escapes. Uh, some people turn to drugs and alcohol. Not many of you do that strongly, but maybe you turn to games or to vacations or to food and drink or some TV shows, watching TV escaping in Netflix. And yet the question that Moses is reflecting on is something that we should reflect on. Does God come into play at all as you're processing the challenges to daily life, to yearly life, to this life? Is He coming into play as you're considering this next week? Is he, did He come into play as you consider the hardness of yesterday? As you consider the hardness of tomorrow? Um, you know, there are many things that tend to fill our minds, consume our energy and thoughts. When we're children, uh, what kind of toys am I going to get? We, we were kind of consumed with that this past week, if you have little kids. Um, when we grow older, maybe middle school, we start thinking about boys or girls, and does somebody like me? Am I liked by my friends? That sort of thing. Uh, as we get into high school, what kind of car am I going to drive? And where am I going to go to college? And what's my life going to be like? And what kind of job am I going to get? So we graduate from college and get a job. What kind of home am I going to get? What kind of person am I going to marry? We become consumed with all these things that we think if we can just fill in the gap with the, the ideal, whether it be the toy or the, the car or the job, our life will be fulfilled. Uh, I live in a house full of uh, young women and they meditate on these things often and and uh, I have a, a 15 year old who thinks that if they can just get the, the perfect car they're going to like have their life fulfilled and I say well man that car is really expensive and dad can't afford that car and they're like well I know I can raise the money and save the money and, and then they start trying to do it and it's a lot harder to do than they think and so it's like Maybe that dream's not going to be fulfilled. We're ever going to look for life and happiness. We all do that sort of thing. All of us do in all sorts of different ways. Yet the psalm has really good news and really bad news for us because it shows us how we must respond to this reality of filling in the gap of a broken world and being broken ourselves. And what we're going to see is because we are short-lived and sinful, and yet, because God is eternal and faithful, we must run to Him even as we're called to reflect on the tr- passing and sadness that marks so much of this life. 
First, I want to start by looking at the bad news. And there's a lot of bad news in this psalm. And this psalm starts out by showing us the bad news of our frailty. It shows us that this life is transitory. It passes quickly. Verse 5 says this. They are like a dream, talking about us and our lives. Our lives are like a dream. Now, I'm 49. About three weeks ago, I was 18. Um, And somewhere in those three weeks, I I looked in the mirror, I got really old. As a matter of fact, there's someone who used to go to church, and I saw him a couple weeks ago, and he greeted me, and I hadn't seen him in about five or six years, and literally the only thing he said to me is, oh my goodness, you're really, really great. I'm like, hey, good to see you too. Now I've had a, a few days to get used to my greatness, but... Uh, our life in the, in the back end, in the rearview mirror, seems like it goes really fast. The days are long, they say, and yet the years are really short. And I find that to be more and more true. The older I get, our lives are like a dream. And Psalm 144, we're compared to a breath, a passing shadow. Verses 5 and 6 says our lives are like grass, like grass. In the morning, it's renewed and flourishes. In the evening, it fades and withers. Spurgeon had a really uh, uh, quick way of saying, describing how it describes our lives. Here's the history of grass. Sown, grown, blown, mown, and then gone. And the history of man is not much more than that. Last year, at Christmas time, uh, I was having a fire trying to burn all the like, loose wood in our yard, and it was burning really well, and we had to make a, uh, we needed to go to eat lunch together as a family Christmas Eve, and so we went to go eat lunch, and I let the fire burn, and I got back, and something surprising happened that never happened to me before. Our yard was completely black. <clears throat> And it was, I mean, it was gone. Uh, and I was like, thank God. Literally, thank God. It didn't catch the fence on fire and my house on fire. But man, that grass did not take long to burn. And yet the next year, it's greener than it ever has been. And now it's dead again. And that was only a year. And that's what we're like. We spring up quickly. We flourish when you're 18 through 30s, you're, you're really green. And then you get to be 49 and you're regret and dying. That's what the scripture's telling us here. Here today, gone tomorrow, we're like a dream, we're like grass. And it's not just that, we're also really forgetful, forgettable. One of the things that's helpful in reflecting the psalm is, can you tell me a little about your great-great-grandfather? The truth is, is that I don't know anything about my great-grandfather, and I know absolutely nothing about my great-great-grandfather, or any of my great-great-grandparents. And if that's true for me and my family, like, how's anybody else going to know anything about them? In other words, in 150 years or so, nobody's going to even remember that we even existed. 
unless you do something really terrible or something really great. And I'd encourage you not to do something really terrible just to be known 150 years, but you may not even be known for terrible things for 150 years because there's so many terrible things that happen, right? So life is short and we'll be forgotten soon. Our life is really frail and transitory. And yet the bad news gets worse. God shows us through Psalm 90 that our lives are lived under judgment. Life in the fall is hard. It's really interesting because this is, remember this is Moses speaking, the guy who wrote the Pentateuch. He's the one who told us about the fall. And he describes its effects here on earth. Verse 10, the length of our years are 70 or if by stream 80. Yet their pride, they're, they're filled with toil and trouble. And that kind of Genesis 3. They're cut off quickly and we fly away. Verse 7, we're worn out by your anger and by your wrath we're terrified. Verse 9, for all our days go before us like under your fury. We finish our years like a groan. Uh, we used to have an older guy here. Um, when I came I was to this church, I was really young. I was 27. And uh, Clint lived through a lot of stuff with me. And one of our good friends, his name is Hugh Burnham, and he's a, he was an amazing human being. And he was about 75 when I got here. And he, and he would frequently tell Clint and me, uh, grown old is not for sissies. I've really grown to appreciate that comment. But he was talking about this reality. That what does it mean that we live under the anger and wrath of God? It's not, he's not saying God's always mad at us in a direct way. You've, you've screwed up today, I'm now mad at you. What he's saying is, is that when we rebelled in the fall through Adam and Eve and ever since then all of us, that there's been a disposition of God towards us that we're under his wrath. That uh, we are on the wrong side of God. Because we live in rebellion to Him. He made us to live for His glory. Every day He showers us with kindness. Uh, the, the air that you breathe, the, the, whatever you got to drink this morning, Dr. Pepper for me, it was fantastic. Like all these things that He gives us are really good. And He gives it to us so we'll live for His glory. God bless us so that we can make Your name known and to be glorious. And yet every day I wake up and make it all about ourself, myself. Every day, my girls wake up and make it all about themselves. Every day, I wake up to screaming. Not to the birds chirping, but to screaming of young girls who are screaming in anger with each other over something like a hairbrush lost. We all are like that, and we live under this terrible reality where we're making everything about us. And in that, we're under God's wrath. And in the end, we live in the shadow of death that always waits us. For us due to the fall, verse 3, you turn men to dust, saying, return, O sons of Adam. So we are living frail lives under God's judgment. And then finally it shows us that we live in view of God's final judgment. It's incriminating. Verse 8, you've set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. Think about that. Nothing you've ever done or thought is hidden from God. All your innermost thoughts are brought to light, exposed in plain sight by God's presence, which abides always and everywhere. 
Everlasting glory is invading your little life right here, right now. And it knows everything about you. And that's actually a terrifying thing. Who considers the power of your anger, he just exclaims that the power of God's wrath is immeasurably great. For your wrath is according to the fear of you. Who who fears God like he deserves to be feared in light of his wrath? The greatest fear of God's wrath here on earth, even if misguided or applied, is not great enough to do justice to the reality of how powerful he is and how wrathful he is towards his enemies. So this is the bad news. We're frail, life is hard, and our sins are all known by God. We're all incriminated. That's pretty bad news, quite frankly. And if we reflect really honestly at all with our past year, both individually, as a society, even as a church, all those things prove to be true in our own lives. And so we stand in some need of some good news, right? Anybody here need some good news? Me? Me? And so the good news is also found in this passage, and the good news is this, it's all rooted in the nature and character and relationship that God has with us. Here's the good news. The Lord, our surety, is a sure home for all who trust in Him. He starts out this psalm by saying that God's people live and abide in Him. Lord, You have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Remember, this is Moses speaking. He's reflecting on his own life. There's not been a single day where you haven't been offering yourself as a dwelling place for me, a refuge. He's thinking about the history of God and His people, which have been, He's lived through a lot. Pentateuch. You've been a dwelling place for us, a refuge. You're always inviting us to come hide in you, run to you. The good news of this psalm is also not only rooted in the fact that God has been a dwelling place throughout all generations, but the, the roles of God, that the judge, God is the judge, is our Savior, that the ruler is our refuge. From He says in verse 2, for from, for from forever to forever, you are God from everlasting to everlasting. You're the king, the creator, the ruler of everything. While we are passing and transitory, God has always been and always will be. He's eternal and everlasting. And for all that time, he is the king. And so the application for us is that God is calling us in this psalm to hide in Him, to abide in Him. This psalm greatly contrasts us and God, and the good news is that because God is so different from us, and because He cares for us, He calls us to abide in Him. So we see in the psalm this contrast, the bad news, us. Our lives are frail, hard, incriminated. But the good news is that our surety, the eternal judge, has taken us for his own to care for us, protect us, and lead us, which brings us to our response. And this is the most profound part of this psalm to me, is verse, verses 12 through 17. Um, and our response is this, that God intends for us to realize the shortness of our lives and to grasp his holiness and greatness to have these things shape what we pursue. So what are we to do? We're to run to God on the basis of His grace. If we run from God, 
the only thing we get to experience God as is our judge. But if we run to Him, we experience His favor. This is very counterintuitive because we deserve His wrath. Now, I'm going to go on a little excursion, but like, the more reflected in the psalm, this is a little bit of a weird thing Moses is doing in verses 12 through 17. Because he talked about God being our refuge, being the everlasting one in verses 1 through 3 or 4. And then he spends verses 4 through 11 talking about how terrible our lives are, how short they are, passing, that we live under God's judgment and wrath. And then all of a sudden he says, teach us to number our days so we might present to you a heart of wisdom. He relates to God as a God of grace when he just talked about him being a God of wrath and anger. And why would Moses say that? Well, the truth is, is that that's been Moses' experience. And I'm not going to fully unpack it, but if you want to do kind of a follow-up study, Exodus 32 through 34 is a really amazing section of Scripture. Um, God gives the Ten Commandments, and then what happens? Moses comes down from the mountain. Y'all remember what happens? People of Israel are, are basically saying, hey, this Moses guy, he's left us. This Yahweh, he's not leading us into the promised land like we thought. Aaron, will you, will you form us a different God and we'll chase after him? They start basically having an orgy. It's crazy. Creating this, these false gods. And God sees this and he's really angered. I mean like white hot anger. I'm done, Moses. I'm just going to start over with you. Moses, not realizing what's happened, says, no, no, we're just not making progress. Like, like we're starting to make progress. We're starting to listen to you. No, you aren't, God. Says, we're going to start over, and I'll start over with you. Don't do that, Moses, please, Moses says. But, but will you please show me your favor? I want your presence more than anything. What, what is God's like? I'm just going to give you the promised land without me. What's the promised land without you? Moses says. I just want you. The promised land is nothing if we don't have you. And then Moses comes down and sees what they've done, and he gets really angry. And then God has mercy. First he has wrath, and then he has mercy on them. And so Moses experienced the cycle of wrath and mercy on a frequent basis with God as people. And what he's about to inform us about how we respond is informed by that reality. But, but here's the thing for us. We have something a lot deeper than Moses had. And that sounds really weird because like, you've read the Pentateuch, many of you didn't have. Moses had like face-to-face burning bush experiences with God. What do, what do we have that Moses didn't have? We have Jesus. Moses would have never thought God's going to send his own son to live for people like us and die for people like us. And yet that's exactly what God did. And then he raised Jesus from the dead and exalted him to be the king of kings. And with his power, Jesus says, I'm going to intercede for my people. Always. And so it's in light of those realities that, that we look at these, these prayers, these ways to approach God that Moses gives in light of his experience of God's mercy. He starts out with a plea for wisdom. 
Teach us, it says in verse 12, to number our days. What does he mean by number our days? Um, I was reading a commentary actually on by Spurgeon, and I think it was Martin Luther said, no, it was, it was a guy named Henry Melville. I don't, think, I don't know if it's the writer of Moby Dick or not, but same name. And he said this, it's super weird that Moses would have to pray for us to number our days. Because we should be pretty good at that. I mean, we get old and we look back in life, we look in the mirror and realize we're old. We see people dying all the time. We see horrible things happen to people and it should teach us to number our days so we can get a heart of wisdom. But he's having to ask God, the Holy Spirit as it were, to, to train him to really see life and number his days. Why does he have to do that? Because you and I, we, we think we're going to live forever. And we are. But not here on earth. And so sometimes we live as if this life is our life to live in rebellion to God. But he tells us to teach us, to, he's praying, teach us to number our days. Help us to get how short our lives are, how transient this life is, that we might truly live in light of you. And so he says, teach us to number days. Why? Teach us how transitory that, that this life is really passing so that we might present to you a heart of wisdom. What's a heart of wisdom? You know, as Presbyterians, we tend to be really knowledge-based. We know a lot about theology, a lot about the Bible. That's great. It's awesome, actually. I love theology. I love the Bible. But that's not the wisdom he's talking about. The wisdom he's talking about is the skill of godly living. Like, how to have a knack for living for the glory of God. And so he says, teach us to number our days so we can figure that out, what it looks like to live for your glory every day. We need God to train us. We see a lot of hard things. And sometimes we don't get it. You know, the saddest thing for me over the last few years is seeing the church, even by believing churches, that are doing horrible things in secret, especially the leaders, and giving God a really bad name and making it hard for the people of God to trust Him in the real stuff of life. We, we more than anyone, need this reality for God to, to help us to grasp how passing life is that we might present to Him a heart of wisdom. That living for the glory of God is really the only main call of our lives. What you do in your life, somewhat pick a, pick a route, but living for the glory of God is the one thing you don't need to pick a route on. It's the one thing that every day we'll wake up and live for its glory. And the only way we're going to do that is if, we, if He trains us to number our days. Jack Collins says this, often we have to choose between Things our world considers treasures, wealth, reputation, position, comfort, and so on. And between earthly treasures, which treasures we work for determines whether we have a wasted life or a meaningful, worthwhile one. And our whole life, is, our whole education, is it where our whole training, all the commercials you see, all the schooling you get, is training you to live for this world. And it's, it's passing. You're going to end your life if you have everything, all the toys. That's not what God's intended you to live for. 
He's intended to live for His glory. So we need Him to train us to number our days we might present to Him a heart of wisdom. But then the, the, He has several other requests in verses 13 through 17 that, that are more rooted in a plea for grace. And this is, this is really interesting. Verse 13, He says, Return, O Lord, how long? Have compassion on Your servants. Now this is in direct kind of contrast for Moses with verse 3. Because what does God say? Return to dust, O sons of man. You're going to die. It's a a return, as it were, in judgment. But now here, we're praying that God would return to us. That we would experience His presence. O Lord, bring Your presence, bring Your compassion. We long for You and your, Your presence. Again, this fits with Exodus 33 in his prayer to, to God, we long for you more than we long for the promised land. Whereas God said, turn back for judgment, My, Moses cries out, turn back for mercy. So we, we pray and ask that God would show us his presence. The presence of God is the one thing you and I need. And sometimes it's the, the last thing we're really seeking. Every day we should be training ourselves to wake up and say, God, the one thing I want today is you. And all these requests that come after that are outplaying of that reality. In verse 14, he tells us another really, gives us another really powerful request for each day. Satisfy us in the morning with your hesed, your steadfast love. Why? So we might shout for joy to you and rejoice and be glad all our days. Moses knows that Mick Jagger was right. I can't get no satisfaction. And I try and I try and I try. The only way we're going to get satisfaction is if every morning God shows up and satisfies us with His presence, with His steadfast love. Not not just with the thought of it, not just with the theology of it, with the reality of it. God, I need Your presence. Every day, you're promising to be my dwelling place, to give me good, to show that steadfast love, that marriage commitment love. Why? So that our hearts might be glad. So that we might rejoice and be glad all our days. Think about this. This is a crazy prayer for Moses to pray. It's a crazy prayer for us to pray because it seems so unbelievable that we would be glad all our days. Yet Moses is pleading for this with the expectation that God's going to give it because He gives good gifts to His people if we run to Him. He unpacks verse 14 really in the next five verses. What does it mean for God to satisfy us in the morning with His steadfast love? Well, verse 15 it says, to make us glad according to the days you've afflicted us, according to the years we've seen evil. God, we've experienced a lot of the brokenness of this world, a lot of the reality of the fall. We long for the beauty, the glory, the, the, the bluebellness, as it were, of redemption. We long to experience the goodness and gladness. And the only way we're going to do that is if you show up. Verse 16, let your work appear to your servants 
your glory or adornment or splendor to their children. God, will you reveal to us what's really important? Show us your work that we might get that it's not so much about what we do, but what about but about what you do that's really critical, and that our kids might get it. How glorious you are, how wonderful you are, how beautiful you are, that you're the only thing we're pursuing. Because they're probably not going to get that just for me, modeling very up and down what he's like. I try, I long that my kids would see what God's like through me. And yet I know that there are days in which that really shines, but most days it's a sad shadow of what God's really like. God, will you show my kids, will you show our kids what you're really like, his beauty, that they might pursue you. And then verse 17, again, unpacking verse 14, let your favor of grace be upon us. Cause the favor of Adonai, our God, to rest upon us. God, we long that your grace would show up every day. We, we pray that at the end of every, every service. God, will you show us your favor? That we might show what you're like to the world. And will you establish the work of our hands? Just establish the work of our hands. What work is he talking about? He's talking about the work of our hands in every respect. But especially about discipleship and parenting, work and school. All our doings are in vain unless God moves through them. Unless he makes them beautiful, they'll not be what they need to be. But even as we're thinking about the psalm, I was thinking about 1 Corinthians 15. And there's a really interesting passage in 1 Corinthians 15. It talks about the resurrection. If the resurrection is true, what's this life about? Like it's all a waste. But the resurrection is true. So Paul says this, this life has real meaning. As a matter of fact, he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, I'm going to read it to settle watch it from memory. Because the resurrection is true, he says this. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. But that prayer that Moses asked, established the work of our hands, Paul says, hey, if you pursue that in light of the Lord and for the Lord, take heart. He's going to establish your work. Your work is not going to be in vain. So we see a lot of hard things in this passage. We see that our lives are short. They're lived under judgment. We deserve God's wrath because we incriminate ourselves. And yet we see some glorious things. That God is eternal and everlasting. That He is holding Himself out to be our dwelling place, our only hope and refuge. That He is holding Himself out to be the real friend that we need and long for and struggle to find here on earth. And in light of that, He calls us to run to Him. Asking He would train us Himself to number our days that we might present to Him a life that's worthy of Him. And that He would show up, that He would show up and satisfy us with Himself, that He would show us His steadfast love each day in reality. Now, there are two things I want to leave you with in just applying these things. Our lives are just fodder for all the applying this prayer. 
We're deeply in need of it as we, as we get old, as you get old like I am. As you get older than I am, you start realizing, man, life is really short. And unless God like takes this piddling offering in my life and makes it beautiful, significant to Him, it's 150 years, nobody's going to remember it. The only person really look, worth living for is the audience of God because He's the one who's going to remember not just 150 years, but 150,000 years from now. So what is your comfort in life and death? Well, the Heidelberg Catechism captures it well. Here's my only comfort in life and death. We say this frequently, right? That I am not my own, but I belong with body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He's, he's fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood and has freed me from all the power of the devil. And He offer, also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my Heavenly Father not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, that all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by His Holy Spirit, He also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily and willing and ready from now on to live for Him. That's, a, that's embodying so much of this prayer that, that Moses offered for us. And then I want to share something that Calvin shared. This is one of my favorite uh, passages in the whole scripture, really. Not the whole scripture, all of the theological writing, sorry. And here's what he says. Now the great thing is this, we are consecrated and dedicated to God in order that we might hereafter think, speak, meditate, and do nothing except for His glory. For a sacred thing may not be applied to profane uses without marked injury to Him, the Lord. If then we are not our own, but we belong to the Lord, it's clear that what error we must flee and where we must direct all the acts of our lives. We are not our own. Therefore, let not our reason nor will sway our plans and deeds. We are not our own. Let us therefore not set it as our goal to seek what is expedient for us according to the flesh. The way we think is easier, most profitable according to our own system of thinking. We're not our own and so far as we can, let us forget about ourselves and everything that belongs to us. But conversely, we belong to God. Therefore, let us live for Him and die for Him. We belong to God. Let us let His wisdom and His will therefore rule all our actions. We belong to God. We are God's. Let all the parts of our life accordingly strive towards Him as our only lawful goal. Calvin, another place, said, Nearly all wisdom that we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom, wisdom that matters, consists in two things. What are those two things you need to know to get life? Knowledge of God and knowledge of ourselves. This is what Moses laid out for us. As of ourselves, we're in a major mess. As for God, He's glorious. He's offering Himself to be a refuge. Now there's some of you who are here today who may not have ever known God to be His refuge. You may have never 
experienced or known about Jesus or you've heard about him and said, it's okay, I got this life, I'm going to hide it myself. And it's a sure way to destruction and loneliness and just living under the shadow of the fall all the time. But here's the glorious thing, that because of Jesus, who is the righteous one, He invites you to come to Him. Not to get it all together, but to come to Him as screwed up as you and I are. Not that we might get it together before we come to Him, but we might come to Him as those who are beloved by Him, who have been sent, who He sent Jesus to live for and die for, that you might have Him as your refuge. But if you have Him as your refuge, don't be a fool and leave Him on the shelf. Run to Him. Run to Him and ask that He would train you. Not just that He would give you theology or the Bible, but He would actually Himself through His Spirit train you through theology in the Bible to know how passing this life is, how great God is, that you might present your life to Him. Grasp that He is your shelter so that you would run to Him and ask that every morning, no kidding, every morning, will you show up this morning, God? Because I'm not going to... I don't want all the glories of this life unless I get you. I need your steadfast love. If I don't get it, my life is going to be a train wreck. This day is going to be a train wreck. And to know that that's the heart of God for you. He loves you. He created you. He sent His Son for you. How will He not alone with Him for to give us everything else we need? Let's pray. But God, I thank You so much for Your Word. I thank You so much for... Guys like Moses who were broken people like all of us. Who were able to give the testimony of what it is to long to live for you, to screw it up, and yet to run to you and experience you as the sure refuge. And I thank you most of all for Jesus. God, they not screw up life so badly. Not just before I was a Christian, but even after being a Christian, that I know deeply that there's no hope for me, no hope for us, except that you have loved us through Jesus. And yet how often we neglect you, our need for you. Will this year be marked, even this week and this day, be marked by us hungering for you, seeking you, and God, even more so, you showing up with your presence, with your steadfast love, with your grace. God, will you do this, we pray, and make us people of prayer like Moses. We might experience you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.